It is good to have a spirit of thanksgiving as we enter into this week. Let's open the word of God. Let's hear from the Lord's holy inspired word. We're in Luke chapter 5. In the upcoming weeks of Advent, we hope to have a separate uh, brief series of uh, reflections and sermons, but we're still in Luke 5 and we'll be finishing the chapter today. And as you're turning to Luke 5, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream. Come on down to Mo Road and join us for worship. Uh, We're glad that you're hearing and attending to God's word, but we invite you to be with us and among us. Our text for today is in Luke 5, and it begins in verse 27, as Jesus calls Levi. And it continues on through the end of the chapter as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees who are present and have a few problems. Verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and And offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. Can you imagine if one of those faces you've seen on TV were to be seen here in church? I'm thinking of some those famous and wealthy people. Uh, What's his name? Musk? Elon, Elon Musk? or Jeff Bezos, or Warren Buffett. I'm thinking of famous people with a lot of money. And and some of those people, the world often wonders if they were fair in in how they made all their money. And I'm not picking on any one of them. But can you imagine someone of notoriety in a position of power with a lot of wealth all of a sudden changing course, walking away from their business enterprises and joining with the cause of Jesus at a local church and and changing direction vocationally. 
That would certainly get our attention. And my friends, in a smaller way, that's something like what happens here with Levi, who Jesus calls to be his disciple, who will later be known as Matthew, the apostle. What was his business? He was a tax collector. And in the day, that was close to being called a mobster. Close, and we'll talk more about that, but it was not a positive image. He was not a public servant. He was probably, like many, not all, but many tax collectors, very much filled with greed and avarice, corrupt, indulgent, cut off from his people. So it is one of the more shocking and and stupendous events when Jesus speaks a word to this guy named Levi and he gets up and follows Jesus. His life is forever changed. What should we make of that? One of the ancient church fathers 2,000 years ago, Cyril of Alexandria said, Levi, I like his, his phrase, Levi was snatched from the workshop of sin itself. And saved when there was no hope for him, all at the call of Christ, the Savior of us all. Yeah, he he, he didn't seek out Jesus. He didn't come and see, as Andrew said to Peter. He wasn't a disciple of John the Baptist when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, and some of John's disciples went after Jesus. No, Levi was at work. All his coins stacked in front of him. He was in the, in the booth collecting taxes, by the way. And it's Jesus who goes to him. And I want us to see something, and it's significant even though it's brief. Jesus shows us something of ourselves in Levi. He comes, he interrupts your life and you're serving yourself and calls you to be a part of his kingdom. Or as preacher Phil Riken puts it, what we ought to see in Levi is our own sinful selves. Because until we come to Christ, he says, we are like him in so many ways. We sit in the toll booth of our sin, trying to get as much as we can for ourselves, and not caring too much what we have to do to other people to get it. We will keep sitting in our sin, he says, going about our business until Jesus interrupts us the way he interrupted Levi. I'm hoping that Jesus is here to interrupt you today if you're not already walking with him. It happened to Levi. It's happened across the centuries to many, across all strata of society. There's good news here about Jesus. And we'll learn something about Jesus, his call, his compassion, his joy. But there's also some more here because there's reactions to Levi and his conversion by the religious elites, these Pharisees. And we can learn from that, that there's a required attitude of compassion that we need to have if we understand who Jesus is, if we understand his mission and his methods. So there's a corrective here as well. Let's look at them all together under the title Rejoicing with the King. Let's first look at the King who calls. We could say the King who comes and calls because that's what we have in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world. He came as human flesh, the Son of God. He just didn't shout from heaven, hey, you guys, clean up your act or come this way. Do that. He comes 
and calls. We've already seen Jesus patiently working with Peter, Simon Peter. When he first met him, he said, I'm going to call you Peter, and a lot of neat things are going to happen in your life. And later on, he performed a miracle to fully convince Peter to follow him. So we've seen other religious leaders, we've seen these fishermen begin to follow Jesus. But something's different here as the king calls this guy named Levi. Jesus is going out and he sees Levi at work, sitting at the tax booth. And he probably has some armed guards on either side because there was money openly on the table. So again, if we wanted to use some of the modern language, some kind of loan shark, no, mobster, Um, The list goes on and on. Uh, People uh, have called him a robber, a thief, a thug, a criminal, a mobster, and one commentator called him a lowlife. I thought that that was going pretty far. But that's the image from the ancient world, the the broad stereotype of a tax collector. Because what were they specifically? He was Jewish. But because the area was occupied by the Roman army, And the Roman army needed their taxes. They hired, they put out for bid. Who wants to collect our taxes? And whoever the highest bidder is got the job and said, okay, you have this territory, whether it's Jericho or Judea or uh, these cities or that city, and you need to get us this much in taxes, go get it. And this Jewish man who was employed by the Roman occupiers was viewed as a collaborator, even worse, as a traitor. And most likely they used their position not only to get the money due their boss, but to get something for themselves. You've heard the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. He had had misappropriated a lot of funds in his business endeavors. Tax collectors uh, such as Levi likely did the same. And because of their association with the the occupiers and because of their their criminal activity, the way they handled their money, they were considered unclean and they were detached from their Jewish brethren. You didn't hang out with them. In fact, in one record, uh, rabbis were even recommending that they be excommunicated from the synagogue lest they contaminate the synagogue. Because another rabbi said, if a tax collector should come to your house and enter it, Everyone in the house would be ritually unclean according to their interpretation of the law. So tax collectors getting near them, dealing with them, or being one was not good in the eyes of most Jews in Jesus' day. So it immediately raises your attention if you're reading this, especially if you were Jewish at that time, or if you were a Pharisee and saw this happen, what Jesus recruited who? The tax collector and the Pharisees. There was a a real break. Later on, when we get to Luke chapter 18, that'll be many weeks from now, we'll hear Jesus describe Pharisees and tax collectors in a parable. It should sound familiar in Luke 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Is that a commentary on today's passage or what? Continuing in in Luke 18, Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So as you begin, you might think, okay, one's a religious and good and righteous guy, the other guy's not. But listen, the parable. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, Jesus says, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, said the Pharisee. There was real enmity. And if you know the rest of the parable, it's the tax collector who wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. One who boasted in his righteousness, certainly I'm righteous, I'm better than him because of what I do. And then the tax collector in the parable of a broken heart. Maybe, just maybe, that parable of Jesus, we'll we'll talk about it when we get to chapter 18, maybe that was the Lord's awareness of Levi's brokenheartedness. Maybe. Levi had been going to the temple and troubled by his position, by his sinfulness. He was aware of it. I think that's a possibility. Because here, back in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus says, follow me, he gets up and leaves it all for Jesus. This call is accompanied by this conversion. He is changing and changed in response to the simple call of Jesus. Follow me. Same words he gave to Peter and the others. But they're powerful, authoritative words. And the Holy Spirit is evidently at work within. Do not underestimate the power of God's word. You might be sitting here, why, why would a guy just walk up and leave work? That's not normal. And and it's it's not normal. Here it is unusual. It's the days in ministry of Jesus. So I don't expect people that are converted just to walk away from their employment. But in this case, it's the power of the word of God to change a heart, to change a mind. You may read something in the Bible. You may hear something from the Bible. And if the Holy Spirit's at work, it's a lightning bolt. It is life. There's power in the word of God. I know it. I believe it, as do you. Jesus gives this powerful call. The Holy Spirit's at work, and he is converted. Now, Jesus invited many to believe in him, and many didn't. We have to remember this doctrinal distinctive, and I throw this out just so that you have a category and you can look into it. When Jesus invited many to follow him, a lot didn't. What's the difference? Not every call of the gospel, whether from Jesus or from this pulpit, is received or obeyed. That's the general call of the gospel. That's what we call it, the general call. It goes out and it may bear fruit later on. But the Bible doctrine, we believe, talks of an effectual call. That when the Spirit works and it's the will of God, that same invitation to follow Jesus, that same gospel call in a sermon in New York State, when the Holy Spirit's at work, it can be made effectual. It becomes irresistible. God will cause you to stand up and reply and respond in ways that are not natural to you your faith, your belief. So we believe in the effectual call of the gospel. It's described in Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew, he also called. 
the effectual call, it comes with power. And we often pray that the offer of the gospel is effectual. And so what happens? The king who comes, he calls, and this is a happy convert. What do we see about Levi? We don't know much about him here. Do we even hear any words of his? No, he just, we see his actions. Uh, he, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi, verse 29, made him a great feast in his house. Why was there a feast? The first reason that we don't want to overlook, he, he just loved what Jesus had done for him and wanted to please and bless Jesus. Hey, come to my house. I've, I've got more food than I can eat. You and all your friends, come to my house. So it's gratitude. You know someone is genuinely converted when they want to praise and thank God. When they're just filled with joy. My heart is filled with uh, uh, happiness and thankfulness when I'm a Christian. It, it, it just changes. You, you don't smile every day of your life when you're a Christian. But that response is the telltale sign that you know whom you've believed and what he has done for you. And such joy. And his eyes are opened. He sees life. He has seized upon the pearl of great price, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he also seeks to celebrate him and worship him. This is really an act of worship for Jesus. But he not only has a feast for Jesus in his house, there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. He invited everybody from the club, everybody from the office, everybody from the neighborhood. What's going on? I've heard something's happening. Yes, come and see, come and see. And like Andrew, with his excitement, trying to convince his brother, we found the Messiah. Levite brings these tax collectors into his home as an act of witness, as well as worship. That's another telltale sign. If you are a Christian, you love to worship, and you're willing to witness. In fact, as Peter would say in Acts, we can't help but speak and tell what God has done for us. Or the blind man. I can't help but tell. So this happy convert celebrates because of the king who called him. We learn something further, though, because the story doesn't really stop there. And Luke, in assembling the gospel, tells us about the reaction to this feasting in the house. There was not only Jesus and Levi, and I assume all of Jesus' disciples because they're involved, and the tax collectors and others, Verse 30, Pharisees and their scribes were present, or at least nearby. And they grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So they grumble. They don't call out Jesus, who's in the midst of the fellowship. They speak to the disciples, whose ear they can bend. And when Jesus replies, we see the king who cares. He not only calls in the discipleship, but he really cares about what's happening here. You see, the Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, had a different view of table fellowship than Jesus. Jesus wasn't sinning by sitting with the sinners. He wasn't sinning by hanging out with the tax collectors and being in that building and eating their food. Rather, he was still on mission. Maybe he was going to call a few more tax collectors to himself. But in the ancient world, to eat at a table, table fellowship was very significant. 
We don't generally think that way in our American culture. Perhaps at Thanksgiving, when we gather around the Thanksgiving table, we think this is a special meal. We want our loved ones present and, and maybe even invite a stranger and share our meal. But in the ancient world, to have table fellowship was something that was done by the Jews before God. And you wouldn't want to uh, mingle with, with those that were uh, in rebellion to God or openly sinning or cursing God. That was not the practice. The Jews here not only were watchful over their associations, but these Pharisees um, thought Jesus was risking contamination and that he was guilty of something by his mere association and presence with them at their party. Now, we do know what Psalm 1 teaches us. We need to be careful of the company we keep. This is not a contradiction to that. But Jesus is on mission. We as Christians are left in the world to be salt and light. And salt and light needs to be in the darkness and the decay to have its effect. We need to go and make disciples, not wait for disciples to come to us. That's the background. And yes, we do want to watch the company we keep. But as, as Tom Schreiner explains it here, the temptation of the Pharisees is to emphasize purity in such a way that leads them to segregation and exclusion from others. Dr. Schreiner says this is a danger the church always faces. To maintain purity, we're tempted to separate from others and form our own holy conclave, untouched by the world. And in so doing, we sin and neglect our mission to the world. So this feast, this sets the stage for Jesus to teach. They question. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I hope you know the answer. Jesus speaks for his disciples. Jesus gives the answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is on his mission. As he came into the world, he also went into that house on his mission. And he uses a metaphor, a, a parable, if you will, and talks about doctors. Those who are well have no need of a physician. If you're healthy, you don't call 911. Oh, I just thought I'd check in. Have a nice day. No. It's those who are not well that need the physician. Oh, doctor, you won't believe how much it hurts. Or when your child is ill. Or when a loved one collapses. You see and know your need and you do something about it. Should it surprise us that doctors and nurses and EMTs hang out with sick and ill people? That's what Jesus is trying to convey. You religious leaders, think of me as a physician. I have the power to heal. I have the power to save. Why would I not be with these people? This is the mission principle of Jesus. According to Doug Milne, the Pharisees had confused the outward life with the inward life as a way of justifying themselves. These people won't be justified if they start behaving like you. They will only be justified if they start believing in me. So Jesus goes and dwells with those in need. 
So this is a mission principle. On your sermon outline, I think I put that as the second point, a mission principle. But there's one more point that Jesus makes here. Do you hear it? In verse 32, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a debate among translators and scholars and even pastors who preach. Is Jesus being straightforward there or is Jesus being sarcastic? Who is he talking to? Those who perceive themselves as holy and righteous. Who didn't really want to be near Jesus and what he was up to. So is Jesus saying, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So I think this is a possible and likely prick of the heart. Jesus' words here have bite to them, and I think the potential to address these Pharisees. And it's still early on in his ministry. We know the hardest words of Jesus are for the religious leaders, for those who should have known better. But here he seeks to prick their heart, I think. The words of the Bible ought to prick our hearts. You read something and it makes you a little uncomfortable? How about that verse that you can't have two masters? Or that verse that whoever loves the world doesn't really love God? Or if you're unwilling to leave your mother and father, sister, brother, husband, or wife for the sake of the gospel, you're not worthy of Jesus. God's word pricks us and tests us and tries us. It cuts right through religious facades and your Sunday go to meet and close and the size of your Bible. It goes to your heart. Jesus saw these men. They, they, they hadn't blasphemed. They hadn't likely committed adultery. They, they were probably good men. Pharisees, you remember, were laymen who were really striving to live righteous lives. And they they fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. It was well known. If you were a Pharisee, you hit all the buttons. People looked up to you. But Jesus says, people need who I am. I am the Messiah and I am here like a doctor seeking the sick and sinners to call them to repentance. If you think you're right enough with God on your own, that's why you're not listening to me. Jesus says, I am with these people. The well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus went with those who grasp something of their need. That's certainly what's taught here. On my recent air travel, I listened to the audio book by Greg Kukul called Tactics, How to Talk with Others About Christ. One of the best books uh, you can read, uh, How to Interact with the World with Kingdom Purpose. And he admits at some point you're going to be talking to someone who doesn't want to hear you. They just want to talk and oppose you. And he said, if they're not willing to hear, stop wasting your time. That's, That's a possibility. But Jesus says he's come to call sinners and those who sense their need of him. Levi jumped from the table, perhaps aware of his sin, wanting cleansing, wanting life, wanting a relationship with God, and obeys Christ.
This is a king who comes. This is a king who calls. This is a king who cares. This is Jesus. And he will call Levi. He will prick the hearts of Pharisees. He would welcome them if they would come and answer his invitation. Well, when Jesus says that, they change the subject. Do you notice that as we read on in Luke chapter 5? Uh, Jesus had is told about his mission, and so verse 33, and they said to him, so they're speaking to Jesus now, about disciples and fasting. It seems they're changing the subject. They say this, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. There's not really a question there. There's just innuendo. Hey, hey man, your disciples, they're party animals. What's with that? They don't seem to be very religious. They don't seem to have repented. Just saying. We're here as Pharisees. Just want to point that out. I think you have a, a, a goofy looking gathering there, Jesus. They're all just happy. And they're with other people. They're not fasting. They're not praying. They change the subject to fasting. It's not a a random subject change because that was part of their righteousness. They were buttressing and pointing out that they don't need to repent. We fast twice a week. Let me just ask, when was the last time you fasted? Don't answer out loud. Believers are to fast. It should be part of the Christian life, right up there with Bible reading and praying. But I don't expect most Christians fast every week or twice a week. These men were serious, denying themselves food so that they could pray or meditate on Scripture. There's a good impulse in that. I really commend that. There's a righteousness to these Pharisees that is really puts a lot of modern evangelicals to shame. The trouble is, they begin trusting in that righteousness. It begins to eclipse Christ and his perfect righteousness, which we need if we're going to be saved. Because on our own, no one is righteous. No, not one. Not the best Pharisee. No. But they were trusting in that. We fast. So why why did they bring this up? Because they're really displaying, this is what repentance and righteousness looks like. Take a look here, Jesus. So they're attacking Jesus, perhaps uh, ridiculing him and his disciples. You say you're calling people to repentance, but look at the way they're living. They haven't combed their hair. They haven't fasted. What are they doing? They command religious behaviors and criticize Jesus. And it's interesting, don't forget the actual history here. They're trying to use John the Baptist and his disciples as evidence. They rejected John the Baptist, if we remember that. They just would not accept him. They wouldn't answer, is, was he from God or from man? And they, they really didn't like him, but they're using him because he's convenient here as an argument that they are more repentant than Jesus' disciples. They look down upon the activity of Jesus with this complaint, and it's based on a presumption. We do need to make a footnote here that Jesus, as a devout Jew and a man without sin, did practice fasting. 
Fasting in the Old Testament was required. How many times? Just once. On that annual day, all Jews were to fast. Jesus practiced that. Jesus went long hours fasting from sleep that he might pray. The record's clear. He was often without food because of the press of people that he needed to serve. They can't really call him out for being a wine-bibber and self-indulgence with food and drink. But Jesus has an answer here, and this is instructive, because what is the passage about? It's about how even somebody in the midst of their business and their sin can be called and welcomed by Jesus. It shows us Jesus' call, his compassion and mission. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, the bridegroom is here. He uses another parable, another word picture to make his point. And he'll, he'll say this um, in verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying it's inappropriate when the bride and groom are there to all of a sudden strip off your garments and put on sackcloth and ashes and fast. It's just inappropriate. It doesn't fit. There should be joy and celebration at such a gathering. So Jesus is implicitly comparing his presence with repented sinners and his gathering flock. It's like a wedding. People who see me as the Messiah are a little bit happy that I'm here. And we're celebrating. This man, Levi, has had his sins forgiven. Whoever has been forgiven much loves much. That's what you see here. It is inappropriate. Dale Ralph Davis, the Old Testament scholar, when he writes his commentary, uses a lot of simple illustrations. He says this is inappropriate, just like if you had a a, a six- or eight-year-old birthday party. Any six- or eight-year-olds here or older? And if your birthday party, your parents want it to be inappropriate, instead of serving ice cream and cake, they brought out broccoli and Brussels sprouts. Oh, boy. There's just certain things that are inappropriate. So that's what Jesus does in this reply. He says, come on, Pharisees, look what's happening here. This man's life just got changed by being in my presence. Why shouldn't we rejoice? The older scholar, Norval Geldenhus, said, Jesus rejected fasting here in this case, quote, as a religious meritorious ceremony bearing a compulsory ceremonial character. But he practiced fasting himself at times and permits it as a voluntary form of spiritual discipline. The bottom line is it was inappropriate here. It wasn't the time and the place. Jesus does go on to say in the verse afterwards, he said, verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And the verb taken away, my friends, in the Greek is, it refers to a very quick and violent act. So when Jesus is seized and put to death, and his disciples are filled with grief, there won't be any feasting in the upper room. They'll be fasting and praying and weeping. 
The bridegroom is here. But Jesus goes on. That doesn't really satisfy them. He also told them a parable. He could see that they weren't getting it. So he gives them two more pictures, beginning in verse 36. He also told them a parable. Notice he says it's one parable. But he's going to talk about two different materials. So what does that tell us as we enter into this next section? There's something about the cloth and the wineskins that are the same principle being taught. Okay, That's why we're treating them together. In my sermon heading, it's just the new wine is here. But it's the new cloth and the new wine as one consistent parable about old and new. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Why would you do that? You got a hole in your garment. I, I, I know I love certain articles of clothing. That green shirt. How long did I have that green shirt? And the armpits get torn out. You can't really patch it. I had to throw it away. Or your favorite blue jeans. You could put a patch on the knee. Or you could just buy a new pair of blue jeans. And they're ripped at the knee already for you. I have no idea what that's about. But you don't take a new piece of cloth. And put it on an older garment. In those days. As you wash it. The the new piece would shrink. And it would pull away from its stitching. And you'd still have a hole. That's what Jesus is talking about. Um, you don't, that's not how you patch an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So that's inappropriate. The old and new don't mix that way. And he goes on in verse 37 because he's continuing the parable about how old and new mix. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Let me ask a question. Do you understand that in the ancient world, wine, by and large, wasn't in glass bottles? Yes, if you were a large estate or a home, you might have a, a, I'm going like this because you'd have a big cistern, a jar that would have to be carried by multiple people with two big handles, a big urn of wine. And it would usually be a cone shape and it would be sat down in a bucket of sand so that it stays upright. That would be for liquid measure, either oils or wine. And when Jesus created wine at the wedding in Canaan, those large vats were refilled with water and Jesus turned it into wine. But for personal use and when you'd carry it about at an event, you would have a little wine skin, a goat skin. It almost looked like a little canteen and you could squeeze it and squirt out the beverage And it ages with the material that's in it. And so that's how wine was kept, the wine skins. And so Jesus uses the knowledge of how that works. He says, no one puts, verse 37, new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. Not because you put too much in, but the new wine as it processes. I don't know all the chemistry here. Is there a chemist in the room? The, the, The fermenting expands and contracts in the... The aged wineskin doesn't have that same supple ability. How many people have picked up a rubber band to bind something, but it's an old rubber band? What's happened to its elasticity? Pull, snap. The old wineskins can't handle the new wine. It's just not what you would do. It's not appropriate because it'll burst. You'll lose your wine. You'll lose your skin. So you need a new wineskin. For the new wine. That's what Jesus explains. Verse 38. Notice how he's carefully repeating this picture. But the new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. What is Jesus talking about with the old and the new? With, whether it's the patch or the wine. With the patch, he says uh, what Phil Riken says. You can't make little patches out of Jesus and put them on your old ways. 
Oh, I follow Jesus today. With the wine illustration, it's no good simply to pour Jesus into your existing life and live the same way. Del Ralph Davis says it's no good to try to squeeze Jesus into your old molds, thinking that Jesus has just brought some additional religious ideas you can tack on to your preformed traditions. No, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Personality will stay, but there's a newness of life. There's a new perspective. There's a new behavior. There's a new heart a new mind, you can love God, you can love your neighbor, you can walk in his ways, you can say no to sin and yes to holiness. There's a newness to life in Christ. You see that with Levi. And I think because of this newness setting in, his name would later be Matthew, which means gift of God. He didn't get God by extortion or conniving or by permission of the Romans. God was a gift to him. And his life in Christ is a gift. Matthew. New bridegroom. A wedding to celebrate new work. God is doing a new work. We know about the new covenant. We know that in the fullness of time, God would put a new covenant into place through his son. That's what's happening here. The kingdom has come. This is the son of God. And the Pharisees couldn't see it. And there is joy involved because there's joy when God works. You could see that when you go into the Old Testament. Verse 39, I want to mention in passing before we conclude. uh, No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. We have to think of that as it was written in the Bible times. Today, usually the older the wine, the better, right? But not in those days. What is being said in verse 39? I think Jesus says with a sigh. He says, people that have been drinking the old wine, people that live in the old ways, don't have an appetite. what's new you Pharisees you're really good at all your stuff but I'm the son of God I'm the Messiah I will enact a new covenant that will free you from the law of Moses and in my righteousness you will be righteous because no one's righteous on their own guys if you fail at one point of the law you're guilty of it all whereas Jesus keeps the law Perfectly. We need the new covenant. You cannot be saved by an old covenant. That's the thinking Jesus has here. It's actually no longer a heart prick. It's a, it's a real pronouncement against those Pharisees who don't get the old and new distinction Jesus has been making. Levi got it. The Pharisees reject him. Let me leave you with three applications from what we've been looking at today. First is really simple. If Levi can be saved and walk with Jesus, anyone can be saved and walk with Jesus. That's part of what, and it can be that black and white. He finds something greater that money can't buy. He finds relief from his guilt and shame. If he was the guy who had prayed, whoa, 
be merciful to me, a sinner, God answers that prayer. And he becomes a disciple, a commissioned apostle of Jesus. You can find that happiness. You can find that purpose. You can, you can have your life count for the glory of God by coming to Jesus. There's a general call in this sermon. Repent and believe. Follow Jesus. And if the Spirit is at work, even now in your heart and mind, that is an effectual call. And you will find help to stand, to pray, to respond today. We're not going to call you forward. That's just physical stuff. If God's calling you and you respond from your heart, you can have this joy and walk with Christ. A couple other exhortations, though, for the rest of us uh, who already profess to walk with Christ. Posturing for perceived purity. There's my alliteration. Posturing for perceived purity does not reach the lost. It doesn't help the lost if you are separatist and isolationist and unwilling to draw near. Jesus draws near. That's so characteristic of Jesus. How come it's not more characteristic of his people to go where you're needed most? I did a lot of walking around Denver this week, streets and alleyways I did not know. And they've got just a remnant of a police force. And I was a little nervous at times, but on my hands, my life is in the Lord's hands. I might meet someone I can help. We want to go and make disciples, be in the world, but not of the world. So be careful if you take pride in your posturing and your purity, but you neglect to love your neighbor who is lost. And the final word is about joy. You should seek happiness and joy in the kingdom. If you know Christ, let that joy out. Tell others with joy. Evangelism is not a chore. It's a privilege. It's a joy. Oh, do you know what I just learned? Do you know what I know? You look so sad. You look so weighed down by life. Can I help? Let me tell you about my special friend, my Savior, who changed my life. Do we have that joy? Peter, in his epistle, wrote to those who had not ever seen Jesus like us. So I close by quoting Peter. Though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Be joyful members of the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy and hope you give us in the gospel. We thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for the unseen work of the Holy Spirit to bring men and women to belief in Christ. And I pray you're doing that today, even now. Or on another day, if this recorded sermon is blessed and owned by your spirit, Lord, may someone have their eyes opened that they would rise and follow Christ. And have great joy in him. 
Father, guard our hearts. May we be on board with the mission and the means of Jesus that many might have this joy. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.